My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shadow. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. <laughs> Once upon a time, they didn't show fashion in museums. Well, with the exception of establishments that were specifically focused on fashion and textiles, I guess. But art museums, the horror that they might mess about with costume or the supposedly less serious applied arts. It was one of my favourite fashion figures, Diana Vreeland, who changed all this during her tenure at the Met in New York, where from 1973 she staged wonderful fashion exhibits that proved extremely popular, extremely thrilling and serious at the same time. Today, of course, fashion is big business for museums. It draws the punters. So I'd be very surprised if any museum would sneer at the idea of an exhibition of frocks now. I like this quote from the Washington Post fashion critic Robin Given on the subject. She asks, is fashion art? The answer is, perhaps it doesn't matter, is her response. The numbers speak for themselves. The Alexander McQueen Savage Beauty exhibition, for example, was the V&A in London's most visited exhibition, with 493,000 people showing up during its 21-week run. And at the Met, pretty much every year's summer show beats the last one. More than 1.6 million visitors checked out Heavenly Bodies, Fashion and the Catholic Imagination this year. In Australia, the NGV in Melbourne has some fabulous blockbuster shows, including 2014's The Fashion World of Jean-Paul Gaultier, which is one of my favourites, and last year's Big Dior exhibition. Did you get to see that one? If you're feeling nostalgic, you should check out the podcast we did with the wonderful Dior milliner Stephen Jones back in Series 1. The NGV also had an excellent show called 200 Years of Australian Fashion that opened in 2015 with everything from early dressmakers through to 1950s department store brands and modern leaders like Dion Lee. Nevertheless, it remains a rarity for one Australian designer or brand to hold down an exhibition. There are a few exceptions. Tony Matuszewski did it at the Bendigo Art Gallery. 
And the wonderful Akira Isagawa has a show opening at the Powerhouse in Sydney in December. Looking forward to that one. But my guests this week are Pamela Easton and Lydia Pearson, who were actually the first fashion designers to have a survey exhibition at the Queensland Gallery of Modern Art back in 2009. Now these two are subjects of a new show at the Museum of Brisbane. It's called The Designer's Guide Eastern Pearson Archive. It features 200 garments and, as the catalogue says, reveals the artistry techniques and demi-couture practices that place the label at the forefront of Australian fashion from 1989 to 2016. These have been selected from a massive archive of 3,300 Eastern Pearson garments that were donated to the museum last year. It's an invaluable resource for fashion students and just fashion fans, but it's also an important contribution to Australia's cultural history, which fashion absolutely should be considered part of. Now, Pam and Lydia are my friends. I love them and I loved their label. So I was delighted to be asked to record a podcast with them that's used for the audio at the show. How nice, right? So when you visit, you'll have the three of us in your ears talking you through the exhibits. And this episode is like a companion podcast. So it's all extra to the stuff that you'll hear at the show if you're able to get there. And this will tell you the whole creative story. You're going to hear why this Aussie icon that sold at Browns in London and Bergdorf's in New York was such a big deal. Pam and Lydia share their secrets about design, their making processes, and how they started. We talk about how they pioneered and centred slow fashion and ethical production in the Australian context before those phrases were even in common parlance, but also in India, where their main workshop was located, and they worked with the artisans there for more than 20 years. We also have a frank discussion about the challenges of running an independent slow fashion business in a fast fashion world. This episode is brought to you by the Museum of Brisbane. The show opens at City Hall, King George Square, Brisbane on November the 23rd and it's on till the 22nd of April 2019. For tickets, visit museumofbrisbane.com.au or you could win a double pass from Wardrobe Crisis. Hop onto my Instagram at Mrs Press to find out how. As usual, dear listener, I'm so grateful for you spending time with me. I love getting all your messages and feedback, and I'm constantly delighted by you recommending the podcast and joining the conversation. Yay! I love that I'm doing this with my mates. You're my mates. Absolutely. Aren't we lucky? (laughs) And I've been delighted by all the work that you did over the years. I wear Easton Pearson, and now, after being sad that Easton Pearson had shuttered, I get to go and look at the archive in a museum, which is actually really amazing. It is amazing for us too. And you don't have to spend any money. (laughs) Even better. In fact, you can't even spend any money. Oh, you can buy the book. True, true. Oh, yes, you should buy the the book. book. We're recording this in the Museum of Brisbane, in which your archival exhibition will open in November. Tell us about it. How did it happen? What are we going to see? It happened because uh, Dr. Paul Eliadis acquired our archive and then donated it to the Museum of Brisbane. So, very good thing, number one. And we're looking at a big span because you started in 1989. That's right. Yes, exactly. We're looking at three and a half thousand garments and goodness knows how many other bits of photography and video. Because it's not just clothes. It's actually campaign imagery, it's video, it's Mm -hmm. all all kinds Mm -hmm. of media, isn't it? Information that we sent to workers, all kinds of things. Yeah, it's just like like... sacks under your bed or what? 
No, <laughs> no, the the archive. That is a real question. I was wondering if you had to go and ask people, you know, acquire things that you'd missed. Nope. No, we no, no. It. We kept we kept almost all our sample ranges um, from probably the early nineteen nineties mm. onwards, mm. and we kept those because we realised that they were a terrific reference for us. So. It was a working archive mm. for us. We referred to various garments for um, the shape of a pattern or an embroidery or the fit. So we would write a spec and sometimes say to the pattern maker, use this garment from, you know, 2005 and make these adjustments. Love, because actually in the modern world of very different to you but big commercial giant fast fashion, there's none of that because we chuck it all out after three seconds, don't we? So we say, okay, knock off something from runway now, throw it away, totally different shape, feeling mood now. Whereas you're talking about this thread that you can see from the beginning that goes through collections. Yes, yes. And I think that's something that's very interesting. Certainly for me, looking back at the archive as a whole and when curators start to take things out and we start to talk about the archive is that we can see these threads Mm. that have continued through, Mm. you know, whether it be a shape or the way we fit something or a colour. But it's like a, it's like a, a handbook for how to make Eastern Pearson, really, because we developed a lot of particular making finishes that were definitely ours that we often used. So we could pull something out of the archive to send to a sewer and say you have to do the neck like this or we want the hem Mm. finished this way. It's actually efficient, isn't it? I mean, it would be madness to redo it all. It saved us a lot of time. It is efficient, Mm. yeah, because to make a pattern is very expensive. Mm. I know, I made one once. I yeah. just still got them in the store. How much did it cost you? Oh my God. I had my little label, oh, which was, was obviously minuscule compared to something that we're talking about in this context, but what a nightmare. A yeah, it was called Mrs. Press. I named it after my married name, and mm. it was inspired by vintage stuff, and I got married in an ancient vintage wedding dress, and I made these things. But now I've got the bloody patterns in storage. I pay for them. Because mm. I can't bear to throw them away. They're cardboards and they That's cost right. me an mm. arm and a leg, yeah, even mm. though I'm never going to make them again and probably they're riddled with mistakes mm-hmm. for fit anyway. <laughs> and, yeah, and when we is. began, there were no digital pattern-making tools. There were no digital cameras. I mean, when we began, there were no fa- – well, there were fax machines. There was no but, telephone. But, but there, right. we did have a telephone, but we did not have a fax machine and we definitely did not have a computer or a digital camera or – a mobile phone. Um, so we started in a... We're very old. <laughs> we started but the in. weird thing is that you're not very old. The weird thing is this very short time frame mm. in which the world has become... It has just changed. changed. revolutionary change. Dramatically, yeah, that's very true. So the possibilities now for a young designer who's trying to start working with a factory are quantumly different mm. than they were for us. Mm. Mm. I always remember going to a retrospective that you did at the GOMA. It was the first time that museum had ever shown fashion mm-hmm. and it was incredible. It was in 2009 and everything about it was fab. I have the book. But I also remember a window through which you could see all the cardboard patterns mm. hanging up that was like emulating or bringing the experience of your workroom into mm. the museum. Yeah, that's true. A very old-fashioned workroom, it now turns out. <laughs> but isn't it interesting because perhaps people... I mean, Lydia, you teach now design students. How common is it for those students to understand how to work a cardboard pattern? Well, actually they do, mm. to varying 
extents, but I was sort of lying really when I said it was an old-fashioned mm. thing because they do all make paper patterns. That's how you begin. Yeah. Well, especially if you haven't got any money because you're not going to begin on a mm. giant scale. That's right. And they're all very interested in making things by hand and making things really old school and doing hand knitting and hand embroidery and... It's quite interesting. Talking of archives, I think that the way that many listeners will be familiar with the concept is to think of big houses in Paris, Dior, Chanel, having these very expensively put together archives in custom-built or rented incredible big grand spaces, loads of money thrown at it. It seems like a kind of massive extravagance and something that other people can't get. But actually... There's real value in an archive in terms of telling cultural stories and mm -hmm. in terms of, I guess I'm just saying, we need them in Australia to be mm. able to tell our own stories. Well, when you get to the sort of collections that you're talking about, the couture collections, it's like a piece of art. And how sad would it be if artists just threw away their paintings at the end of an exhibition? Mm. Mm. To conserve textile is incredibly expensive and the Museum of Brisbane is doing a brilliant job. Can I just say, yeah, I can I was, see curator Maddie nodding mm -hmm. in the background very, very hard. <laughs> it was very, it was a very, very big decision for the museum to accept the archive, even though it was a donation, because yes, you can take a donation, but then you've got to look after that donation and then you're responsible for it in perpetuity. And you also have to display it and honour it. So And make it accessible. Yeah. And catalogue it. And turn That's it into a teaching tool. Let's go back to the beginning. You two met at the end of the 70s. Can that be true? And then yeah, it is. Before the end of the 70s, I'm no, sorry to tell you. No, it was the end of the 70s. <laughs> what year did you come to Brisbane? 78, something like that. No, it took you 10 years to start your label. But tell me about Brisbane in the 70s. I'm quite interested. Well, you're good at that. Oh, I could tell you anything you want to know. <laughs> but was Brisbane it? I mean, I read this thing as I was looking for references so that I could throw this at you, and I found a story that you'd, or an interview that you'd given, and it was you, Lydia, and you had said that, I actually wrote it down. You had said that Brisbane, being quiet, allowed you space to think and grow creatively, and your words were, Brisbane was an easy place to start. Okay, it was hard in some ways because we were a bit isolated, but it was friendly, comfortable, mm -hmm. a community. And in the circles that we moved in, people weren't judged by how brilliant their careers had been in the last six months. So it was easier to make time to do something. I love that. And to experiment and to... Yeah. I mean, we had to make our own fun. I mean, we seriously had to make our own fun in our own lives, didn't we? We did. And we were part of a group of friends who were interested in, you know, vintage clothes. We were interested in history. We were interested in... Counterculture. Counterculture, you know, history of music, modern music. And, you know, we did things like organise debutante balls, very tongue-in-cheek. You know, we, we, so you could wear the frocks. So that we could wear the frocks. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, and so the boys could wear their tails. Exactly. Most, most boys had lots, multiple sets. <laughs> Yeah, but actually, I mean, that was where you got clothes, wasn't it? Pre, I mean, I was like mm -hmm. that as a kid, pre-cheapo shops you could mm -hmm. go to when you were a teenager, mm -hmm. you got mm -hmm. them from flea markets. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you made them from some tea towels. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> all, of that. all of that. All of that. <laughs> but was Brisbane a bit lively and a bit rocky or was it a bit of a backwater? Brisbane Sorry to use was, the phrase. Brisbane became a very lively punk scene. Go-betweens? Yes, the go-betweens, yes. the riptides, the sunny boys... Lots and lots of bands. There and was art? Lots of art. Very interesting. Ray Hughes Gallery started here in Red Hill. I didn't Hill. know that. I know mm. Ray Hughes. And or I did. Mm. Poor Ray Hughes. Poor Ray Hughes, that's right. 
But so it, was there a feeling a of like theater. kids making stuff and, and yeah, energy absolutely. about the city? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There was a great energy. I mean, really? we had to make it, didn't we? Because we didn't have anything. What did you look like? What were you wearing when you met? Not obviously exactly, but just at that time, what might you have been wearing? I know what Pam was wearing. Do you? Well, Lydia favoured 20s and 30s dresses and was always very you know, beautifully groomed and had the most you know, divine outfits and everything put together gorgeously. And I was She's Pam, shaking her head. Pam. <laughs> yeah, I'm shaking my head because <laughs> Pam always looked like a 1950s fashion plate. And the day I met her, she was wearing a sort of saucer hat yes. and cat's eye sunglasses and a blue wrap-over cotton dressing gown dress <laughs> with great big white spots on it. I love and that a big, dress. And a big petticoat underneath, a bit like what I'm wearing today. I don't remember the shoes. <laughs> oh, that is so specific, though. You remember yeah. the hat. Oh, I remember. It was, I mean, it was pretty extraordinary. Yeah. And you thought, one day, a label. No. No. <laughs> I mean, we didn't <laughs> think now, that at all. Pam went away, but you had your own label and your own name, and you had a store in the Brisbane Arcade. I went away first. Where'd you go? After London. That, I went to Paris, and then I went to Sydney. I think it was just the chance to be away away from everything that I knew and to invent myself as a person exactly as I wanted. Yeah. And actually fashion paid a very small part in that because I had zero, zero money and I was travelling so I couldn't really acquire very much. But it's just so, even the eye, seeing those buildings, oh, galleries. seeing the art. Mm. Mm. Just being there, just hearing French was enough. Mm. It was so fantastic. But anyway, I came back from Sydney to start the brand because I knew I wanted to do it. I'd been making clothes for friends in Sydney and working for the public service and I couldn't afford to stay in Sydney. And Working I for the public service in what? In what the public, I was in the public service board. Were I you? was the person who gave all the people like me jobs, decided which department they could in go to. In your 1930s frocks? Oh, yeah. Oh, I was more <laughs> a bit punk by then right. for a while. But in pretty outlandish clothes. And everyone who worked for the public service in those days wore, well, not everyone, of course, there were a coterie of people who were in the public service because it gave them a job job with money. (laughs) And then they could be whoever they wanted to be at night and go clubbing and be in bands and paint and make things. Your own label... Were you inspired by vintage silhouettes? Yes, a lot, by a lot by vintage. Pam bought my clothes for Sports Girl. I did. So you were a she buyer. She was a buyer for a while. In mm. Melbourne. Mm. Now, for listeners who are outside of Australia, could you sum up Sports Girl, not as it is now, but as it was then? Mm. Uh, Sports Girl was the most exciting retail store in Australia. Young and fun. Young and fun. And it was, a. I think at that stage they had, maybe 10 stores in the capital cities, and it was the place to shop. And they had fabulous, um, some fabulous imports. They had the best makeup. They had. They also had Linda Jackson, who, if you have not listened to the podcast with Linda Jackson, please do. It's in series one, and we'll share a link. She worked upstairs she in did. the bridal salon. She did. She did. That was before me. Yeah, that was in the 60s. That was in the 60s. But that- the fact that they had a bridal salon... Amazing. I know, amazing. And they did lots of handwork. For context. I didn't know that. Yeah, but for context, a sports girl today is like an Australian Dorothy Perkins. Just putting it out today there. Today it is. Yeah. yeah but or back, a top shoppy thing. Back then but it was then, more like yeah. a, a modern Bieber. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Very much um, mm. a beacon. Mm. 
Fast mm. forward, 1989, you decide to get together and start a label. You called yourselves Bow and Arrow. Mm-hmm. We I did. know this. We I did. did. I only just looked it up. Never knew it. It was Bow and Arrow by Easton Pearson. It was Bow and Arrow because Pam had found a beautiful photograph in a an English magazine, an English Vogue, I think, of um, a brooch that was made by a French jeweller called Lynne Vautrin, who's quite famous, and it was a beautiful bow and arrow. The brooch was a divine bow and arrow. And then we thought that was quite a nice... Yeah. Turned out that there was a person called Easton who made bows and arrows, and we did get quite a lot of very strange <laughs> requests over the phone. What? I'd like to order a bow and arrow and so I could shoot a rabbit. That's right. It was weird. <laughs> Lovely. Anyway, was there a philosophy? Like, because when I think of you now, when I think of Easton Pearson, I think so clearly about slow fashion, about the mm. beauty of the handwork, about celebrating artisanal craft. Was there a vision like no. that to begin with and where did it come from there later was, on? There wasn't one, I don't think, at the beginning, really. Not we like just that, except we did, you know, we did write like a, when we were first discussing mm-hmm. working together. I know this. You wrote a list. Yeah, did. Pam made us write a list to see if we were aligned. <laughs> <laughs> and we were. <laughs> what did you put on your list? Success. Oh, Maps. you know. Galleries. No, it was more like time with family and not working too hard and um yeah, so, I mean, natural anything. fabrics and but actually this could be remember. a good way to start a business because actually it was about vision it was about this is the kind of life we want to live with business well absolutely. it was it was at least as much about the life as it was about anything else wasn't absolutely. it absolutely because you'd come back to brisbane to have a bit more life yes. after all that intense time at mm. sports school and mm-hmm. i had two babies and i my husband had a restaurant i needed some life as well as so it was about how we wanted to work and what we wanted to make mm. and you know what thought, else is there actually mm-hmm. i mean it's well, clever that's right. and we 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 wanted it to be enjoyable and who ever knew that you know 27 years later <laughs> we were still going i'm gonna oh. zip forwards because in the 2000s you were then pretty much putting australian fashion on the international map because you were stocking all these big name stores i'm talking joyce in hong kong mm. Browns in London, mm-hmm. incredible shop, Mrs. B. Bergdorf Goodman. Bergdorf, just Bergdorf's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clareur in Paris. Paris. I never say that one because I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> I probably pronounced it wrongly pronounced anyway. pronounced it properly. I liked it. Yeah. You said it was Biffy, good. Biffy in... Oh, Biffy. Um, Fabulous. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah. For listeners who might not be aware of Mrs. B at Browns, could you sum her up? Oh. She was the most encouraging generous woman i mean she really is the i hate to use that word doyen but she really made careers for many people and she um, stocked john galliano from his first collection she bought his collection. collection when i went to london in 1980 the first place i went was brown's and I was too scared to go inside, but I just stood there and stared at the outside. Because Discovery, it's the wonderful labels. It's still, oh, still, it still it's is. It's still it the still most is. extraordinary shop. And it's not like a great big department store. It's tiny little rooms. Yeah, where everything is brilliant. Curated. Like every yeah. selector's yeah. piece. Yes. Well, it has changed a little now because it's now owned by... Farfetched. Farfetched. But, but Mrs B was so terrific for us and really encouraged us and really encouraged other people to you know to come and she really believed in us which was great what was it like to go onto that 
I'm using inverted commas, I know it's a silly phrase, but world stage (laughs) and show your work because actually for young designers or fairly new designers, I mean, you weren't that new, you've been around for 10 years, but still from Australia doing things on a smaller scale to then be on that level of having to see these buyers who see the best and biggest labels in the world. I just think you should share the story of how in Bergdorf's at your first appointment or an early appointment, (laughs) it was in your hotel room. And how was that? That that was was our first trip to Paris, the first time we showed in Paris. And um, our friend Albert, who was very much in our... Albert Morris. Albert Morris, who who is Mrs B. Joan Bernstein's was right-hand man. Yes, he was a consultant for Browns. And he used and to work great for Carl friends. at Fendi. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. He knows his stuff. Absolutely. Did he hook up that meeting for you? Well, because he's Australian, because he was friendly with Joyce, and because he came to Australian Fashion Week with Mrs B that first time when we showed, we knew him. And so when we were coming to Paris, he knew that we were coming, and we didn't really think we'd show the collection there. We thought we'd just show Mrs Burstein and, and Joyce Marr. Mm. So the first day, you know how acerbic Albert is, he says where's your invitation? When are you showing? And we said, oh, we're not showing. And he said, what do you mean you're not showing? What are you here for? Have you got your clothes? And we said, yes. And he said, get me an invitation and drop it at the Ritz by 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. (laughs) And we just went, okay. (laughs) So then we had to go running off and buy stuff to make the invitation with. Then we realised that the hotel... (laughs) No, we just wrote it. But then Did you realise calligraphy? We didn't have anywhere. We didn't have anywhere to actually show the clothes. We so didn't have any coat hangers. We didn't have a rack. The room we were staying in was smaller than a cupboard. It was so tiny. And you're in Paris. And we we're yeah. in Paris. So we ended up at Samaritan at rush hour. Couldn't remember the word for a clothes rack or coat hangers, and we were running around all the floors before it shut, trying to find them. Anyway, we did finally get them. The coat hangers weighed a ton, and the rack was on wheels, and we couldn't get a taxi. So we were wheeling the rack along the cobbled streets of Paris with the coat hangers. We had to stop every ten meters and change. And we remember we it said to each so other, cliche. "Someone should be taking a video of us because we felt so important <laughs> and embarrassed and embarrassed." And it was really hot remember we were boiling anyway we got home set up the rack wouldn't fit in the room oh no only fit in the bathroom so we put all the clothes on the on the rack in the bathroom and the next day nine o'clock Bergdorf Goodman knocks on the door to come in for their appointment about you know a team of about eight (laughs) six or eight people that's it and they're honestly there was one chair and a bed in this room (laughs) so did they buy it yeah. They bought yes, it, but right, they had but to sit on the bed. The managing director came and he was sitting yeah, at the end of the bed on the pillows and we were putting the clothes one by one on the on the bed to show them because there was just nowhere else. And yeah, the, of course, brilliant. they it's loved brilliant. it, of course. Yeah. And then that season, once you sell to somebody, the word goes out. Yeah. And so then we picked up Biffy and Leclerc and... A showroom, maybe. Terrific. <laughs> no, no showroom. We always showed ourselves. We didn't ever have a Did showroom. Mm-hmm. There's a lovely story about Calvin Klein. I don't know if it's apocryphal, but that he had his first appointment with Bonwit Teller mm-hmm. and he couldn't afford the cab and so he wheeled his collection up from 7th Avenue up town. <laughs> I know how he felt. <laughs> they bought it. I dug up this story from the New York Times... I wanted to find some stuff, archival stuff, 1998, and it was by a journalist called Jennifer Steinhauer. You didn't mention us. Yeah. I'm going to read a bit of it out because it's gold. Although dozens of designers have been creating fashion there for several years, they have toiled in obscurity. 
Far from the watchful and promotional eyes of magazine editors and American and European retailers. She's mentioning you and she's mentioning Akira. Mm-hmm. And she talks about a cultural devotion to leisure and a warm climate that have a strong impact on their clothes. So it's all this stuff about, it's like from an out, the outside looking in at Australia, they're like exotic, bright yeah. sunlight, yeah. The, the sparkling sea, the I, mm. you know. What about that then? Because you were a bit like that. Because come I on, pineapples. That's one of the things that we did realise early on that if we were going to sell our clothes to other places, we had to be showing them something that they didn't already have because we couldn't compete as far as glamour of manufacturing or anything else went. And one of the first times I really realised that what we did in our funny own way was actually appreciated was when Carla Biffy, we said how we'd wished we could find a manufacturer in Italy and she said, don't oh. come and manufacture in Italy. Made in Italy is a very specific specific thing and it's not for you. And what they loved was the way we manufactured, which was for them it looked like you know, demi-couture because of the inside detailing. And she said, what could be more beautiful than this? And so, you know, that helped us realise mm. that we didn't have to manufacture like all the big guys, mm. you know, that it had its own charm and its own mm. value. Let's talk about that manufacturing process. So I mentioned before this association with the slow, with the hand, and also with your makers. You know, 99.9% of the surface decoration that we did was done by hand. I mean, I have to stop and remind myself that it's all by hand. Mm. You know, you can look in the chains, in the fast chain stores, and see embroideries. I don't understand how they can produce it. I know it's machine embroidered, but I still don't understand Mm. how they can produce it for that money. Mm. Well, they can't. Well, they can't. (laughs) They can't, actually. Well, I mean, they can't. Someone always pays the price for You can't produce a T-shirt for $5. I'm sorry, you cannot. Mm. You cannot grow the cotton, mill the cotton, knit the cotton, cut the T-shirt, sew the T-shirt, send the T-shirt, put your retail margin on the T-shirt and sell it for $5. You can't do that. When you add the skilled handwork of embellishment. Oh, well, that's a whole different ballgame. Yes, Mm. exactly. You've always cared about ethical production, ethical fashion. Even before those phrases were trendy or buzzworthy, that was how you did things. Talk to us a little bit about that. I always feel like a bit of a fraud when people say that because we knew all the people we worked with, so we were automatically interested in their welfare. I mean, you are when you see people all the time. And because we actually went to India all the time, went to the workrooms, saw the processes, thanks to Suda, Mm. it was very real to us. We knew that we had to keep people busy or they wouldn't have a job and they'd have to go off and work in the fields or something instead. But, you know, sustainable production and organic production, that wasn't overtly part of our philosophy. But it was about the human connection. The human part absolutely was. And we did use cardi, which is hand-spun and hand-woven cotton, quite a few times whenever we could. But the commercial restrictions in those days of doing that were difficult. And there was no such thing as organic cotton in 1989. I mean, serious. Mm, It wasn't there. That's correct. And and we didn't really know that cotton was really toxic production. We used cotton, linen, silk. Mm. We only used natural fibres. And we thought that was being ethical. But, you know, when you actually look back, it probably wasn't. But when we look back, I think that the thing that stands out so clearly about the way that you two worked and collaborated with your makers and with your teams was that idea of slow. 
I mean, how slow is that? Oh, yeah, yeah that's slow. But slow, we definitely were. <laughs> and I guess we were very interested in the handloom fabrics, the khadi, and also there's another textile from India called chanderi, which mm. is a, a yarn that hasn't been degummed. So when it's woven, it becomes transparent and has a beautiful sheen and it was hand spun and hand woven and we use that right through our Mm. our production and jamdani too and jamdani which is another um, hand woven fabric and brocade was it also about quality and longevity because you're using the best thing you can get your hands on and embellishing it with a great deal of care and Mm. then making clothes at last and I always remember watching you speak in your store in Sydney and you were talking about longevity as something that you would take as red, that that's what you want, but also that you have friends and customers who are still wearing pieces from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and they still look fantastic. And I'm wearing one today. Yay! Yay! <laughs> but that, that's probably one of the biggest compliments that we've been paid, and it's happened lots and lots of times, hasn't it? Mm, and now, so many years down the track... Customers are actually handing those clothes to their daughters and their daughters are wearing them and discovering them again. My kids have got friends whose mums have given them Eastern Pearson to wear and they treasure it. That is a wonderful compliment. As we're wedging a war on waste in 2018-19, this is really powerful stuff. It's Mm. common sense, but it's also the kind of crux of how you fix it, right? Our clothes were expensive, but in a way they were really frugal because... They do have a very long life. I love that you upcycled before that was a word. I mean, you repurposed, you found inspiration mm-hmm. in vintage, you made a belt decorated with champagne bottle tops. Oh, yeah. and, and skirts. <laughs> Absolutely. Lots of skirts. We had to collect so many champagne bottle tops that we had most of the caterers in Brisbane <laughs> providing them to us in sacks. Oh, I thought you were going to say you had to drink them in the studio. Oh, I wish. <laughs> every now question, and, every now and then a really drink? special one had come up and we'll say, oh, we'll just keep that one aside. <laughs> It felt like the end of an era for many people in the Australian fashion industry, me included, when Eastern Pearson closed, and that was in, I think, April 2016. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Why did you close? At the end, we were doing six collections a year with very little design help, and it was just incredibly stressful, and more time went in really into running the business than into designing. Well, also, and- we there was a lot of pressure financial pressure to make the business more profitable and the way that it seemed like we should do that was to really simplify the whole manufacturing process, make more things in China, do a diffusion brand which didn't work out, which was being made in India, which also didn't work out because it was with a different, completely different factory. And we are not good at commercial cheap product and we're well, not interested in it no and in the end it wasn't that cheap because our overheads were still quite high and it wasn't very soulful mm. so and it just got to be too hard I mean it was 28 years it was a long time and there were lots of other things that we wanted to do well, I was going to say so you know we just thought oh this is all getting too hard and you know we can't do the things that we really feel passionate about so 
let's go and spend time with our family. And then Pam and turned around and started holiday. doing it all again. <laughs> so Pam, you did turn around and start doing it all again. So oh, you're now woman. designing a very small and very slow, more and more emphasis on slow, mm-hmm. label under your own name, Pamela Easton. On the website, I love how you describe the slow aspect of it, and I'm going to read this thing because it was so nice. So the phrase you use is, garments enriched by exceptional craftspeople whose age-old skills bring you unique pieces to cherish for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I love that bit. It's beautifully written, isn't it? Well, that's, I mean, that was really what Easton Pearson did, and it's what I love. Mm. But, you know... I think the thing is, if we started Eastern Pearson, if we were starting mm. Eastern Pearson now, it would be the perfect time. Yeah. We were just a bit out of step, I think. Mm. Yeah. Really quite yeah. a bit out of step. You're now, um, Lydia, teaching at QUT, mm-hmm. and those students are so lucky to have you. Those students are so fantastic. I cannot ah. tell you how excited I get to go to work every day. That's great. Let's- do you want to just finish up by telling us where do you think this generation, and in particular your students, see slow fashion sustainability heading? I would say that most of the students that I'm teaching, because they really are not product developers, they honestly are designers, they are learning design, and I think a lot of them are going to end up as really small individual makers. There are Gone a lot of that yeah, very much. Mm. There are a lot of kids who are really interested in repurposing existing garments into new garments they might even use a champagne bottle top they might well in fact one of them has already hammered beer bottle tops not knowing at all that i had used champagne bottle tops in our practice (laughs) that's great and there are others who are only using organic cotton and hand painting all their clothes there's a lot of very exciting things then there's the opposite end of the spectrum of really techie kids who are doing amazing digital printing and making really high tech very, very complicated clothes. But the spectrum is enormous, but there's a really solid core of artisans, artisanal mm. makers. There. Future's bright? Future's extremely bright, I think. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you Because I love you